This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hey, Mike. Hello. So, this is the first episode of the final stretch, the, the final ten, which is kind of like the final five from ba- Battlestar, but not at all. <laughs> so, you know, this is the first episode of our big blowout. And, and so we brought back our biggest guest, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> well, the tallest anyway. Tallest, yeah. sure. <laughs> no offense to our other guests, but, <laughs> but sure. yes, but certainly one of our most popular guests, easily, Mark Cushman. How's it going, Mark? It's going great. Good morning, guys. Thanks a lot for, for joining us. Um now, for those people who don't know, I'm assuming everyone knows, but you know, you're the author of These Are the Voyages, the three books which cover the original series, and you're currently working on volume four, correct? Right. Uh-huh. Yes, there is a volume four. And you know, the the first three was one for each season of the original show, so uh, no, there's not a fourth season. We didn't uncover a, a uh, missing fourth season. Oh, Although, man. in a way, Star Trek Continues is trying to do a fourth season. Yeah, I was going to say, you, 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 didn't Star you just Trek? contribute to a fourth season of Star Trek, right? Uh, <laughs> you, you... Yeah, I, I co-wrote the uh, the new episode, uh, Divided We Stand, which is available for watching now at StarTrekContinues.com. Yeah, people people have been talking, and they're trying to do that as the fourth season. You notice the blue titles and everything. Mm-hmm. They say, okay, so it's nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy, and uh, and the whole uh, agenda there is to try to do what we think they might have done if they had had that fourth season. Even Doug Drexler, who does the um, the effects and the Enterprise and everything, says, okay, I don't want to go beyond what maybe they could have done that year. But I think he has gone beyond a little bit, but because uh, they look damn good. But but that's the the mindset with everybody is it's 1969, 1970, and and let's make this season that we all wanted and should have had, and uh, and do it as close to what it would have been as we can. It, you know, we we have the the Babel conference on on Facebook where you know all of our listeners you know talk about Star Trek and everything, and of course there's a thread for for the new episode of of continues, and everyone's like, oh my god, this is awesome! They're really loving it. So yeah, um, it, it's it it's it's crazy what 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 they're doing the the level of production which which they're able to to pull off. Yeah. It's 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 amazing. They really everyone's got their heart into this, and and it's just such a joy to know these people and, and work with them. And uh, and I even got John D. F. Black and Mary Black to come in and and give notes on a bunch of scripts. Oh, You'll notice wow. their names in a few episodes as script consultants, and that's fun. And James Kerwin said uh, in Vegas uh, about a month and a half ago, he, in, a, in front of a group of people, he said it's so exciting to get these 
these uh, notes that are typed on an old typewriter from them, <laughs> saying, well, Gene wouldn't want you to do this and, and all that. So it's, it's, it's really a blast. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Are, are there any um, plans for, for future episodes? Uh, anything that, that you're involved with writing? Or oh, there's something. Yeah, there, there, there's... Uh, uh, I'm not going to say who. I'm not going to say what, because Vic will probably punch me if I do. But uh, <laughs> but we did... Uh, I have contacted a few of the, uh, the writers from the original series. Hmm. And uh, one of them has uh, presented some material to us that we're looking at now excellent. Uh, maybe that'll go through and we'll we'll see somebody that that wrote for star trek back in the late 60s coming back around i hope so that's amazing that's amazing yeah, yeah. i can't give you any details uh, well, you know, i know i know of course and they're they're very hush, good hush. about keeping things very uh close close to the vest on that on that series they do too. even this one that we just did uh you know they they, uh, they kind of leaked it out that it was going to be the first off-ship episode. They've done little bits of uh, episodes that have taken place uh, off the ship, but this is the first one that the the bulk of the story takes place away from the Enterprise. So he had something special in mind for that, and uh, and I can tell you now, you know, it's a uh, it's Civil War themed because it's out there, yeah. so you can go watch it, and and that was uh, important to us because uh, you know. Gene Roddenberry's hero was Abraham Lincoln, so we thought, well, what if we could work Abraham Lincoln into one of these things? So it's it, it was a fun fun thing to do. We could we could see Gene smiling. I have to say, I was disappointed that that McCoy didn't point out to Kirk because Kirk is standing there like staring at Abraham Lincoln, and Kirk uh, McCoy never says. You met him, remember? He was in the big floating chair in front of the ship. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Um, there, there actually was a line about that in one of the early drafts, and uh, I forget why it got taken out. But I stuck <laughs> that in there because I thought, well, somebody needs to make mention of this. But uh, it, it, you know what it does? It bumps you out of the story that's being told. This story is so serious, and it's so emotional on so many levels that we thought doing a little aside saying, hey, remember the Savage Curtain uh, would be cute. It's a little wink, but we didn't feel that there was really a, a comical moment in this particular episode that would justify it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. we can talk about it now. Hey, remember the Savage Curtain? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, well, let's let's talk about uh, book four, you know, and, and these are the voyages and all that stuff. Okay, so now... The, what what exactly is book four going to be about? Okay, we 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 have the the original series covered. What's next? Well, they canceled it. We get to the end of book three, and uh, and the show's been canceled. And if you haven't read book three, shame on you. I know you have, but Spoilers. I have anybody listening, uh, because it's a complete story. It's it's like watching a movie on the making of Star Trek, and you don't want to walk out at the end. Uh, and even if you think you know the end, well, the show gets canceled, but you don't know all the details of it. For instance, season three was supposed to be 26 episodes. They had two more episodes written, and one of them was from Theodore Sturgeon, and one of them, William Shatner, was going to direct, and uh, they were all ready to go. And so Turnabout Intruder was not supposed to be the last episode. They were ready to start shooting episode 25 the following week. And, uh, and word came down uh, halfway into the production of Turnabout Intruder that NBC had cut the last two episodes. So mood, the mood was really low there. And suddenly, you know, they knew the end of the show was coming. They knew they weren't going to get picked up. Uh, as Again, if you read that book, you'll find out uh, that NBC had an agenda of their own 
that uh, there was not going to be a fourth season. And they had that agenda when they picked it up for the third. They were kind of embarrassed with all the letters that came in and the people marching on NBC Burbank and NBC Rockefeller Center. They said, well, we have to do a fourth season. Okay, we'll stick it in this death slot and we'll be ready for the fans when they start writing letters. We're going to be ready to distract them and to fool them into thinking that we're going to continue with the show. And they made up a form letter that said, don't worry, Star Trek will be back on the NBC network. Well, what they meant was it's going to be back for reruns mm. on Tuesday nights mm. in, uh, in June. And and it worked. It, it helped uh, deter a lot of the, 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 the letters that were coming in. They still got a ton of them, but it kept people from marching and doing things of that nature. And so they had a whole plan on how they were going to keep the fans under control and not get embarrassed in front of their stockholders and not get it into the press that there was another big campaign to save Star Trek and, and everything else. So they, they wanted out. They wanted to exit the show, and, and the whole point of what they did in the fourth season NBC was to find a, a tactful way to get out of continuing with Star Trek. And uh, and it's not all about the ratings, as we find out, because I published all the uh, the ratings uh, that I licensed from Nielsen for every single episode. And you see that in the first year, it was uh, NBC's top-rated Thursday night show. In the second season, it was NBC's top-rated Friday night show. Why would you cancel your hottest show of the night, the show that all the other shows are hanging on to? Uh, but they didn't like the stories. They didn't like the controversial nature of Star Trek, doing stories about Vietnam and sexism and racism and God and all these things. And they couldn't control Gene and they, and they couldn't get him to show respect towards the NBC executives. And so, you know, when you get into that type of situation, we're going to take the show off. So you find out about all this and you see the letters and you see the, um, the, the episodes that were going to be filmed. And it just breaks your heart when you find out that they were saving a couple of the best for the third season for the end. And then they didn't get to make them. You wish they had shot them sooner and pushed uh, the way to Eden. <laughs> they should have made way to Eden episode 26. <laughs> yeah. Have you read the, the scripts for the, the two that they didn't make? Uh, yes. Uh, I read the, uh, the script for joy, joy machine, which, um, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, it was his story, and he wrote the first draft. And uh, uh, Mayor Dolinsky, who wrote um, uh, Plato's Stepchildren, did the uh, the rewrite on that because, you know, Theodore's stuff was always too expensive. <laughs> and uh, they had to have somebody figure out a way to tone it down. And Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry rewrote Shore Leave, and Dorothy Fontana uh, and Gene Kuhn rewrote uh, Amok Time and, and didn't take credit. Uh, and then they had Mayor Dolinsky come in and rewrite the joy. Uh, um, uh, did I say the Joy Machine for? I said Shore yeah. Leave, and then Amok Time and Joy Machine was the third one. And there was also Shore Leave Two that they were planning on making in the third season. Oh wow! And that <laughs> one didn't come about. Um, so no, I did read the material and I report on that. I think in the books and tell you what it was about and what it would have been and so forth. So uh, you know what happens is uh, the show gets canceled. Now where do we go? Well, I did a final chapter for the third book, which kind of takes you in that direction. And the chapter was too long, and it was too good. And poor Sue Osborne was trying to edit it and cut it down. And, and she said, you know, this is just, all this stuff is too interesting. I don't want to cut it, but we can't have a 50-page chapter. <laughs> or actually, it was more like 80 pages, and, and I had cut it, and she had cut it, and it was still 80 pages. And, and so she said, you ought to just make this a fourth book. 
and expand it back out and add in all the stuff that you're skipping. So it takes you through 1970 and, and, and uh, well, through the 70s completely uh, with the animated series and Phase 2 and the first uh, motion picture and um, kind of puts proper closure on TOS as the show's trying to get back onto TV. And finally, with uh, in the 1980s, with Gene, Co- uh, Gene Roddenberry agreeing to do Next Generation. And so it takes us through that entire period. And it's really quite remarkable. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but I, but I think I've mentioned with you before that um, uh, right after they canceled it, within a year of canceling Star Trek, NBC wanted it back. Yeah. And uh, and Paramount wouldn't give it to them because Paramount's saying we're making too much money in syndication, and if we put it back on the air in prime time, uh, the market's going to drop out for the reruns, which of course would not have happened at all. But that was their thinking at that time. So every year NBC would come back and say, "Can we have it now? Can we have it now?" And and they kept saying, "Oh, ask us next year because we're actually making more money this year than we were last year," and it just kept going that way. They thought the reruns would die out in a year or two, but they kept gaining in popularity. And that's why we got uh, the animated show, because uh, NBC came back in, in early 73 and said, okay, what about for the fall of 73? And Paramount said, no, no. And they said, come on, give it, give us something. And they said, well, what about a half-hour animated version? That wouldn't compete with the reruns, and that would keep Star Trek out there with new episodes and so forth. And that's how that came about. And then, of course, you know about phase two. So, uh, you know, they were trying to get it back on the air. And there's so much information that has not been reported from this period of time. And I thought, well, then I better do it. And so that's book four. That, it's it's really interesting. And, and it's interesting in that it seems like it's going to be a much different book in terms of... Uh, format than than the other three because those you really went through episode by episode week mm-hmm. by week and here there's i mean not counting the animated series there's really no episodes to go through so what what is what does this book look like from a, a format standpoint well it it takes you year by year so yes instead of doing um uh, episodes we're we're just covering the events of each year as uh, the popularity of Star Trek is increasing and uh, with the coming of the conventions and the merchandising and the boom of syndication and then the efforts to get the show back on and what kept kept it from getting back on and, and things of that nature. And, uh, and we do episode by episode on the animated show and on phase two, they had uh, a bunch of scripts written. Uh, Margaret Arman and George Meredith, uh, John Meredith Lucas and so many of the writers from the original show had come out and written complete scripts. And In Thy Image was going to be the opening episode, uh, a, a two-hour made-for-TV movie episode, which was going to launch the new series. And, uh, and, and we know, you know, I think there's enough information out there where a lot of people know that just uh, a couple weeks before it was set to start filming, you know, they decided to uh, scrap it and take that script and make it into the first movie and go for the big screen. And it wasn't just because Star Wars had opened and was doing bang-up business. It was also because Paramount was having trouble selling their fourth network. And Star Trek was going to be the flagship of the fourth network. And they had no problem getting enough stations across America lined up to carry it. 
they offered it to all the stations that were rerunning the first series first. So if you had the first series, you had first right of refusal. And they had over 150, 160 stations that were willing to take it. So that that's you know as many affiliates as NBC had at that time. Yeah. But Paramount wanted them also to take other programming. And the other programming wasn't anything these stations wanted to have. So they were having difficulty there. And that was the main reason it got scrapped, not because of Star Wars. They just they weren't having luck in pulling together this fourth network they wanted to launch. Star Trek, Star Wars came out, was making huge money. And they said, well, we got everybody under contract. We've got a script here. Everybody has, has opened up their schedule and was expecting to start working in a few weeks. Maybe we should shoot it anyway and do it as a big screen movie. And, and maybe we'll come back and do it as a series the following year. And so there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on that really has not been explored. And, um, and I don't want to give away too much, but uh, an amazing thing that was going on with Gene Roddenberry and his relationship with Paramount over all this, which he didn't really have closure on until they uh, did the contracts for Next Generation. So that's when the torch is, is finally handed off. From TOS to Next Generation. Now, TOS continues in a way. Well, not TOS. It's not the original series, but the original cast, TLC, uh, continues with more movies. But uh, the torch got handed off in 1986, finally. And so we're trying to fit that all into one book and uh, just gives you a really in-depth look at, at all the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on with, with letters and interviews and memos and, and things of that nature. So in a way, it is a good companion to the uh, the first three These Are the Voyages books. The, the first three had so many, you know, memos and everything from, uh, you know, the writing staff and, and everyone going back and forth with Roddenberry. Uh, since there wasn't like a, an active production for a lot of this time period, was it harder to, to come across those things or, or um, were they still rather prevalent? It, it has been harder, and uh, and but I have come across quite a bit, and I'm still digging, and I'm still searching, and and trying to get uh, Dorothy to see if she'll go into her her storage and find uh, the memos from uh, uh, the animated series. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were a lot of memos that were uh, being generated during uh, the pre-production period of Phase Two, and a lot of memos that were being generated during the production of the movies and, and things of that nature. So no, there there will be a lot of memos in this book uh, because that's what I love doing, yeah. and that's um, that's the, you know I love nonfiction. That's really all I read you know, <laughs> these days is nonfiction. I love biographies and and so forth. But w- the way most people write nonfiction, and I'm not complaining because I love them and I read them, but it's we're looking back in time. It's somebody writing from now and looking back at this event. Or this person's life, or whatever it may be, and what I do, and this is my screenwriting background, is is when you do something that's historical uh, as a screenplay, you're not looking back. It's happening now in front of you. We're taking the audience back in time, and they're they're in Pearl Harbor, witnessing the attack on Pearl Harbor, Torah, 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 things like that. They're done in the moment. And so that's how I write these books, is you're in the moment. We don't talk about the future. When you're reading These Are the Voyages, book one, we're not talking about anything that's going to happen down the road. We're not even talking about season two or season three or the movies or or anything of that nature. 
you're in 1964, 65, 66, and you're there in their offices watching the scripts being written, watching the, the series being produced, watching the fights with NBC, reading the reviews from Daily Variety and, and everything else as the episodes are premiering, looking at the Nielsen reports from those first broadcasts. And so you're in that period of time. And that's what I'll, I, I am doing with uh, book four is we're in the period of time. When it starts off in the first few chapters, you're in uh, the very end of 1969 and 1970. And then as you progress through the book, you, you progress through those years. So uh, there's a lot of interviews that were conducted in the last uh, several years, but but we I merged them and meld them with the, the memos and the letters and the, the press releases and Roddenberry being interviewed for a newspaper article from that period of time and things of that nature to keep us in that moment. So we don't know what's coming up because they don't know what's coming up. We may know, but they don't know. And so you're living with them. You're sitting next to them with them not able to see the future, not able to know that Star Trek is going to just keep building and growing and growing and breeding into sequels and everything else. It, it's a really effective format because it really kind of puts you on the edge of your seat. Like, what's going to happen next? Even though it's like, like you're saying, we all know what happened next, you know. But you're 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 seeing it through their eyes, and and it, it really is kind of like a a visceral experience, which is you know pretty yeah. pretty rare. And it for, works in movies, yeah. and so why not in books? Yeah, and and that that's the way I always felt it should be. Uh, you know, so when you watch a movie about about uh, somebody's life or some historic event uh you really get caught up in the drama uh you know we can we can watch uh, again you can watch tour 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 or something like that you can watch it and you can say well we all know america wins the war well, but they don't know it at that time and they don't know this attack is coming and they don't know how severe the attack is going to be or you know or watch titanic or something like that and so the real uh challenge for me, and it's not really that big of a challenge because I've just been schooled in writing this way anyway, uh, is to just keep us in that moment and let us feel the emotion that the characters are feeling as it's going on. And and that's the fun of it. You know, in book two, uh, we see Leonard Nimoy almost doesn't come back for Star Trek, you know, because he was hired in season one to be second banana. He's, he's getting paid a fraction of what Shatner is being paid. And suddenly he's getting more fan mail and more articles are being written in newspapers focusing on him instead of on William Shatner and the Captain Kirk character. And and so suddenly he's going, wait a minute. Well, this deal isn't isn't correct. And his agents are saying this deal isn't correct. We need to renegotiate. And, and Desi Lu is playing hardball and Roddenberry's playing hardball and saying, nope, we're bringing you back on the contract that we have. And he says, well, then I'm not coming back. And you read those letters. You read the letter that he wrote to Gene Roddenberry saying, I'm giving you heads up. Uh, it wouldn't be fair of me to just not show up on the first day of filming for season two. So I'm giving you, the, 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 I'm telling you that I'm not going to be there. And I'm not doing this to get you to agree to what I want. I'm doing this because you need to make other arrangements. And we see that they did. They hired somebody else to come in and play the Vulcan on the Enterprise. Now, you know, the remarkable thing for me is that, you know, it's almost 50 years later. And with all the books that have been written on Star Trek and all the stuff on, in magazines and all the stuff on the Internet, none of this information was out there. And yet it's all in the show files and it, 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 it all happened. So, yes, we know generally what the ending is, 
but we don't know about all the drama that was going on in the moment. And that's what these books do, is they bring that drama forward so everybody can experience it and live there and feel that they they witnessed it happening. We we have a lot of fans of the animated series who listen to this show, and you know you were saying that uh, you, you do cover the animated series episode by episode, but I, I imagine that it's not as um, in-depth as, as the the original series episodes for two reasons. One, that would take up a lot of space, but two, there probably isn't as much info to, to, uh, to come by. But, um, what, right. what is it that, that you do? How, like, how does a typical, uh, animated series recap or, or whatever, um, uh, look like in, in your book? Well, I've interviewed a lot of the writers, uh, of those scripts and I've interviewed Dorothy, uh, Fontana a couple times about it. You know, and David Gerald and, and all these people and Stephen Candle. And, and so, you know, I, I asked them because we don't have as many memos on this. They weren't writing a lot of memos during the making of that show. It was being handled more on the telephone as it is these days mm. and, uh, and, and meeting with people. So, you know, I talked to them about, well, where did you get the, the idea for this story and what were you trying to do and, and how much rewriting did they do and, and things of that nature and was there any problems with the network. So we're still getting the information, not in memo form for the most part, but we're still getting it. And so you know what they were thinking because we really haven't been given a lot of information on that, that series. And it's a shame because, you know, you had the entire original cast reassembled doing the voices. You had the original writers, you had, uh, Dorothy Fontana and Gene Roddenberry in there rewriting the scripts. And they were dealing with NBC, just like before. And so there there was a lot of drama going on, and there was a lot of censorship, especially because now it's Saturday morning, and you guys are trying to tell stories like you were in prime time. So uh, we, get a, we get a better look and a fuller look at uh, the animated series than we've ever had before. That's, that's cool. I wish it could be stuffed with memos but but they weren't really writing them i'm really interested to find out how they got an episode where kirk defends the devil at the salem rich trials in in into a saturday Uh, morning cartoon went through quite a bit of censorship there were a couple minutes of that episode that got cut out uh because nbc did not want it to then come right out and say it's the devil it's implied but uh, but they, they had to stop short of coming right out and talking. Spock about it. draws a pentagram on the floor and summons <laughs> magic powers. I know, I know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're they're it's it's funny. It's it's like in the original show. You know, there, there's certain things that you could say and certain certain things you couldn't say. And and back then, uh, you know, you, the entertainment division wasn't allowed to comment on current news stories, but everybody knew. The private little war was based on Vietnam, but nowhere in the episode do they say Vietnam. McCoy's arguing with Kirk at some point, and he says, remember the the, the brush wars in, in Asia during the 20th century and one superpower against another superpower and everything else? He's saying almost as much as you can possibly say without using the words Vietnam, you know? And uh, that's where the network would draw the line. So, you know, the same thing was happening with the animated show. Is we know what you're doing, but but just don't use this word, you know. And when when uh, Lucy, when Lucy got pregnant in I Love Lucy, they weren't able to use the word pregnant. Everybody knew she was pregnant, 
she had a big belly. <laughs> they were buying baby cribs, things of that nature, but they would just have to say, she's expecting. You know, they couldn't say pregnant. They weren't allowed to use that word on TV during that era. And, and that's what I find so fascinating. That's why I love writing these books. You know, the first one that I did, if I may be allowed to digress for a moment, because I th- I'm just heartbroken that uh, nothing was made of I Spy's 50th anniversary a few weeks ago. And uh, so I wrote I had written a book on I Spy about seven, eight years ago, right before I did the uh, Star Trek books. And this was such a historic show. This this changed television and changed the world that that our lives are different because of a TV show, the same way our lives are different because of Star Trek. And with all the things we have now, cell phones and everything else, and you can see where people got the idea for all these devices from watching Star Trek as kids. And then they grew up and said, why can't we have that? Why can't I have something like Spock's computer system on the Enterprise that has all this information in it? Well, we can. We can have the Internet. We can have the PC. And why can't I flip something open and and call home like Kirk does with his communicator? Well, we can. We can have a cell phone. And and so all these things came about because of the magic of a television show and the ideas that it brought into people's minds, people who would grow up to become the scientists and the inventors of tomorrow, which now for us is yesterday. Tomorrow is yesterday. But (laughs) with I Spy... You know, before that show premiered, uh, you know, the, the only shows that had featured uh, blacks in the cast on a regular basis, and there were only three, or excuse me, four. There was Amos and Andy, which, of course, was, was uh, embarrassing for blacks. And there was uh, the Jack Benny show, which had Rochester as his manservant. And there was um, Beulah, uh, which had a, a black maid working in a rich white people's house. And uh, and there was a show called East Side West Side where George C. Scott played a um, a social worker. It only lasted for one season. And Cicely Tyson was his secretary. And um, and that was it. So you know it, it, everything. You're a maid. You're a secretary. You're a couple of bums. Uh, that type of thing. And uh, they tried to do uh, a series for Nat King Cole, a variety show, and the Southern affiliates wouldn't carry it. So when I Spy came along for the fall of 1965, it's fascinating to see the headlines in all the trade magazines and the newspapers saying, there's one, I think it's from Variety, and it's in the book, where it says, this fall, NBC will be testing to see which way the winds are blowing in Dixie. They're going to present a Negro actor as a regular in a TV series, and he's not going to have to sing or tap dance. And this is, this is in Daily Variety. Now, you can, I can sit here and talk to you guys about how historic this show was, but when you hear the wording of the people writing about it at the time, it really just opens up your eyes and go, oh, my God, this is historic. That, that a trade magazine is saying that the only way a black actor could get a, a regular show in a, in a TV show is if he's going to sing and dance. You know, so, and then Cosby went on to win the Emmy for Best Lead Actor three years in a row, and all that. So this was a, just a magnificent historic show. One year later, in the fall of 66, we have Nichelle Nichols in Star Trek. And immediately following that, you got Greg Morris in Mission Impossible and Ivan Dixon and Hogan's Heroes. And then a few years later, now you have Room 222 and Julia and Clarence Williams III in Mod Squad. And it all just, it, it just opened the doors to interracial casting 
because of this program. And yet, because of all the hot water that Bill Cosby's gotten himself into, nobody acknowledged the 50th anniversary of a TV show that changed television and therefore changed the world. And to me, that's tragic. You know, to try to rewrite history or ignore history, it's like book burning, you know? It didn't happen. We're going to not acknowledge that this ever happened because we're we're upset with Cosby now. It did happen, and it was a positive thing. So that's what I try to do with these books. And right now, um, I, I just finished up um, and finishing up a two book series on Irwin Allen, uh, which covers uh, the first book covers his uh, his film career and uh, him getting into TV with Voice of Obama Sea, and the second book takes us into uh, Lost in Space and Time Tunnel. And I went through all the uh, Irwin Allen papers, just like I did with Star Trek. It's filled with memos. It's filled with correspondences with the networks, all that kind of stuff. And you finally, nobody's ever written about Irwin Allen. (laughs) You You finally get to find out who this guy was. Was he really crazy? You know, and and why did he change his shows? Why did he start Voyage Off as a serious show about underwater exploration with uh, espionage episodes and an occasional monster, and then suddenly it becomes Monster of the Week? Why did Lost in Space start as a serious adult science fiction show, or pseudo-adult anyway, and suddenly become silly and a kiddie show and a comedy? Was he crazy? How come he made such great pilots and he's always started his shows off so well and then they would change. And we find out in the course of this, I'll give you just a little peek of that one, that, uh, no, he was not crazy. He was flamboyant. <laughs> you know, he was, he was an emperor. I even interviewed the, the guy at ABC who had to deal with him, the, the Stan Robertson at ABC, a guy named Lou Hunter. And he said, no, no, we, we, we called him the emperor <laughs> because he had three shows going simultaneously. Nobody else did, not even Quinn Martin. And so he was very powerful. And, uh, but he wasn't crazy. He was brilliant, which is why we wanted to do business with him. So why did the shows change? Well, he wasn't Gene Roddenberry. He gave the networks what they wanted. If they said this show is too scary for 7:30 at night, you got to make it a little lighter. He'd say, well, are you sure? Come on. It's such a good show. Yeah. It's, it's winning its time slot. Yeah. But you know, we're worried about this. Okay. I'll do what you want me to do. You're the network. Gene Roddenberry wouldn't do that. And that's why Voice of the Sea went for four seasons and Star Trek only went for three. You got to get along with the network. So this, these books really open up a lot of information that hasn't been known before about Irwin and his shows. And I think this should be of interest to people who love Star Trek, because if it wasn't for Voice of the Sea and Lost in Space, there would not have been a Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, during this time period, you know, as as you were, you were mentioning, there were a lot of like starts and stops and, and various um, uh, potential Star Trek projects which uh, may have occurred and then didn't for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to like Phase Two and stuff, do 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 you get into those as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I follow um, the careers of the cast members too, you know, because when Star Trek went off the air. Uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy didn't even know if he was going to have a career. That's why he immediately went into Mission Impossible yeah. without taking even a year off. 
Uh, he did three years of Star Trek, well, four, really. I mean, it was three seasons, but they were in production for four years. And then immediately went in and did two years of Mission Impossible without a break because he felt he had to prove to the world that I can play somebody other than Spock. And so he specifically took that role because that role was going to have him play a master of disguise and a guy that's going to play different personalities as an undercover agent. What better way to show uh, the television industry and the casting directors, you know, that I can play other parts because they're the ones who will pigeonhole you. They're the ones who, who suddenly stopped hiring James Doohan for parts other than that of Scotsman. And he was not Scottish. He made the accent up, as we all know. But it was suddenly he worked a lot before Star Trek. And then suddenly he's only getting offered jobs when they need somebody with a Scottish accent because he did it so well that the casting directors are saying this is the only way we can present him from this point on. Walter went through the same thing. It's like, well, we need somebody with a Russian accent. Let's get that guy from Star Trek. I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I did things before Star Trek where I didn't use a Russian accent. So, um, you know, they were all worried about being typecast, and the, the residuals were running out. You only get paid for the first uh, five reruns. So within a year, that's over. And uh, so, you know, they're all thinking about what are we going to do next? And it was a big dilemma for, for Nimoy each time they wanted to get Star Trek resurrected is do I want to go back and play this character again because I've been working so hard to show Hollywood that I can be other characters. Is this going to be uh, a step backwards for me in my career? But he loved the character, and we get into that in the book too. He didn't want to see anybody else play it. He didn't want to see it get ruined. Yeah, yeah. Um, the last time that we, we spoke, you said that the plan was for this book to go through like Star Trek four, essentially. Is that still the, the idea? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and the reason I, I said the seventies is because, you know, I'm still working on it. I just finished the, uh, the Irwin Allen books and, uh, we're going through the editing process right now. The first one will be out in about, uh, two months. And the, the third one or the second one with Lost in Space will hopefully be out right before Christmas because it's the 50th anniversary. You don't want to miss that, but I don't know. It's going to be tight. <laughs> And uh, and and I'm getting back into the Star Trek book, uh, Star Trek Four, Voyage. These are Voyages Four, which uh, which is half written. And uh, I can't say for sure if it's going to go all the way through the fourth movie because it all depends on if I can get it all in there in less than 600 pages. So it'll be the same size as the other four books. You know, if it feels like when I'm writing it, if if everybody agrees that no, no, this needs to go longer. We'll let it go longer, but we hope not. We don't, we don't want to get carried away with this stuff. You know? <laughs> so if I can, if I can keep it down, it it really comes down to guys. It comes down to how many memos I'm going to come in. Look, if if they hand me hundreds and hundreds of memos from each movie, then I don't want to cheat the fans out of being able to read those memos. That that's why the the start these of Voyages books became three as it is. Originally, it was going to be one. And uh, and when I was uh, signed with uh, Conlon Press to do it, uh, I, I went to Connor, uh, who's the the, uh, the publisher, and I said, uh, you know, this this thing's like a thousand pages now. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do? And and he said, well, can you cut it? And I started showing him the material, and he said, well, we can't really cut this. This is too good. 
okay, let's make, I said, well, why don't we make it two books? And he was the one who said, no, no, if we're going to make it two, let's make it three. Let's make it one for each season. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they weren't able to get it out. Uh, it's, it was just such a big project. And that's why I switched over to Jacobs Brown because Robert Jacobs said, look, I can get this, get this in print for you. And I think you guys know the story. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't talked about it much because I didn't want to talk about it at the time, but I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And uh, my contract came up for renewal with uh, Conlon Press. And uh, I said, you guys missed your deadline to get this out. I really need this first book out in the next six months because that's all my doctors were promising me. And uh, and I want to see it come out. And I don't even know if I told him that, uh, that that was the reason. I just I, I just need to see this come out. And can you get this first book out in six months? And he said, I can't guarantee it. And then Robert Jacobs said, I'll get it out in six months. And, uh, and he did. He had it out. Uh, I signed uh, on with them in uh, February, I think, of 2013. And he had it out in August in time for the uh, – or late July in time for the uh, convention in, in uh, Vegas in August. And I guarantee that he would get the other two books out if I got them finished. And uh, so, you know, he, he kept his promise. It was – kind of a bumpy ride because that first edition was rushed and so it wasn't proofed very well and I didn't like the cover and things of that nature which is why we did the uh, revised uh, season one and then continued on and hey I'm still here so my doctors are no longer telling me that I only have six months as a matter of fact they they seem to think I'm fine but at that time yeah thank you thank you very much (laughs) but at that time um, you know I didn't know and uh, so I, I thought, you know, I've been working on these things for a few years at that point, six years. And I said, damn it, I want to see this first one come out. <laughs> I want to be there. So, so I, I couldn't waste time. And, uh, and so that's why it was pushed and raced through. Usually a publisher likes to have 18 months from the time you deliver the manuscript to get the book out. And, uh, and I didn't know if I had 18 months. So I said, look, we just got to do whatever you got to do to get it out. And uh, and then we'll, we'll clean it up afterwards, and that's what we ended up doing. Yeah. So, I don't know what that has to do with your question. I, I can't. Remember, don't even remember what your question was. Do you? <laughs> uh, my, well, my, my question was whether or not the uh, the book would go through uh, Star Trek Four. But I, I guess my my sort of like my second part to that question is since the next theoretically, if this does go through Star Trek Four, and the next book theoretically is on Next Generation Season One. Is there any plan to somehow get Star Trek's five and six in there somewhere as well? Well, um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I hate leaving any story undone. <laughs> and uh, so the hope is and the plan is at this point is for, for the 50th anniversary for September of next year, and we'll even try to get it out a little quicker so we can take it to Vegas in August, uh, yeah. is to have uh, These Are the Voyages book four done. And that it will cover everything that happened between the cancelization of the first series and Roddenberry signing the contracts to do Next Generation. So that would be the first four movies. Um, if, as I said, we, we were just inundated with memos and materials that we feel would be unfair to hold back, then we'll, we'll break it into two parts. But uh, it's looking like we can get it into one part and make it like a 600-page book. And then the hope is is for the following year, 2017, that we're going to do a book on uh, the first year of Next Generation. And I've already been given all the memos 
from David Gerald, who kept them all. And so I have all the memos that go back and forth between Roddenberry and Fontana and Gerald and everybody else and Paramount uh, regarding uh, the first season of uh, Next Generation. So it will be as detailed as what you've been seeing for um, TOS. Yeah. Which means you guys may have to come back and do another uh, whole pod series. <laughs> we, we've got another Next Generation podcast on the network, so we've already talked about how when the time comes, we will transition you to them, you know, kind of <laughs> in some sort of big okay. ceremony or whatever, you know. <laughs> But they're they're excited when they heard that you guys when when they heard that you were working on a next generation book they they were were very excited to say the least so <laughs> yeah and I haven't started working on it but I, I guess I have because I'm I, I've been doing the research uh, and collecting the memos and scanning all these memos that took a week right there there's tons of them <laughs> I'm surprised and it only took a early week early drafts what? of scripts and things of that nature so yeah we're we're um, uh, in the process of putting all that material together. I haven't started writing it yet. I wouldn't start doing that until I finish uh, These are the Voyages 4 and then go into that. And I have a couple other books I'm supposed to do too. So I'm working, uh, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> but I love it. I love doing this. I love, love uh, just getting into the making of these historic shows, and, and uh, which to me is history. It's very valid. Uh, to treat them as you would treat a biography on a famous person, yeah. you know. I mean, there's there's a 900 page book out there on John Lennon, so why can't there be a 600 page book out there on the first year of the of uh, Next Generation? You know, I think uh, uh, Next Generation is important enough to to have that. And that first year was very uh, uh, <laughs> it was a lot of conflict, and writers love conflict. You know, about what are we going to do, and we don't want it to be too much like the first series and and things of that nature. And the freedom that it opened up at that point to talk about issues that they couldn't talk about during the first series. And Roddenberry didn't have to answer to NBC. And I'm not putting NBC down because, uh, look, as you guys found out from reading uh, the first three These Are the Voyages books, NBC was... Uh, had a split personality. There was the part of NBC that said, let's get this show off the air. But there were people within NBC that were very supportive of Star Trek, and Stan Robertson was one, and he was the guy that would read every script and give them memos and notes and suggestions and things of that nature. And and Stan Robertson had never gotten his, his due, but he does now in these books because you see his memos and you see him coming up with ideas and saying, what if he did this in this episode? And his contributions are really quite good. He could be a pain in the butt, too. You know, he, he didn't like the um, the bottle shows, and he was always fighting them, saying, look, let's not do another episode that takes place on the Enterprise. You, you, you promised that you're going to take us to all these strange new worlds. Let's have a strange new world in each episode. And Roddenberry would come back and say, you're not giving us enough money. <laughs> we can't. We can't create a planet and all the costumes and all the culture and everything that goes with it every week on what we have to work with here. And, and, and the fact that we have to shoot these episodes in six or seven days. But beyond that, Roddenberry would argue, and you've seen the memos, the letters between him and NBC, where he would say, look, some of our best episodes are bottle shows. You know, The Naked Time, Charlie X. You know, things like that, the doomsday machine, you know, it's, it's some of the best ones we've done 
we don't leave the Enterprise. Or in the Doomsday Machine, they leave the Enterprise, but they beam onto a ship that looks just like the Enterprise, so they use the same sets. So in a sense, it was a bottle show. And, and so it was a constant fight between him and Stan Robertson over this, and he won. In a way, he lost in the fact that because he was always fighting NBC, we didn't get a fourth season. But, uh, but he won in the fact that he was able to do the type of episodes he wanted to do. Uh, but Stan Robertson gave him a lot of positive notes as well and a lot of great suggestions uh, for things. It was, it was Stan Robertson in book two, you'll see, who wrote the memos on Amok Time, that in the original script, they weren't even going to beam down to Vulcan. You know, <laughs> they were going to go back there and they were going to beam to Pring up to the Enterprise. And uh, Stan Robertson's memo, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but uh, uh, but it's in the book, and he, he says... Uh, Look, that's cheating the audience. You know, everybody's been wondering about Vulcan, and we're actually going there, but you're not going to go down to the planet. We're only going to see a couple people, a couple Vulcans. He says, you got to go down there. We, 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 we got to see, see what the planet looks like and the sky looks like, and we got to meet more people down there, or the audience is going to feel cheated. And so it was him who got them to change direction on that episode and do what they did. And there's a lot of other examples like that. So I, I think uh, the reason TOS is as good as it is, is because of the uneasy collaboration between Gene Roddenberry and NBC. And of course, Gene's brilliant staff of Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana and Bob Justman and so forth. But... Um, you know, NBC was very important in TOS feeling like it felt. Stan Robertson was always writing letters saying, this episode's starting too slow. There's not enough action. We have to have more physical action in this episode and things of that nature. And so that's why TOS moves at the speed that it does, which when you compare it to Next Generation or certainly the, the first couple seasons of Next Generation, TOS moves at a much brisker pace. And uh, there's a lot more physical action fights and things of that nature, seeing Kirk jumping in there and getting into a slugfest with a bunch of Klingons and things of that nature, where you weren't seeing that in Next Generation. Well, in Next Generation, Gene didn't have to deal with NBC. He didn't have to make it action-adventure. He was able to make it intellectual science fiction. And if you like intellectual science fiction, you love Next Generation. If you prefer action-adventure, you lean more towards TOS. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that book as well. I mean, all of these things sound great, but okay. So you've got you've got book four theoretically coming out in next year, right? Hope, hopefully in time for for mm -hmm. the convention, and then book five right. uh, for the for the th was it thirtieth anniversary of next gen? Oh my god! Oh, yeah, yeah, oh. two thousand seventeen will be the thirtieth anniversary of. Uh, that's terrifying. Of, uh... <laughs> Next generation, I know what's happening here. Uh, time's flying by. Uh, and uh, it didn't premiere until what? I think October. So I've gotten to October. Now, of course, we'll try to get it out sooner because it's just good business for us to be able to go to that giant convention in August in Vegas yeah. with, with a new book. Yeah. Uh, so we always want to do that, but we don't want to do what we did in 2013. We don't want to go, go out there with something that's been rushed Mm -hmm. and then have to do a revised edition that, that pissed a lot of people off. So, so, um, initially it pissed a lot of people off, but I, after, after the first shock of, Hey, I bought this book and now I got to buy it again. 
I, I think everyone's happy that we did it because the revised book is is so much better. It's got more pictures. It's cleaner, you know, for one thing, but it's got more pictures. It's got more interviews. It's got more information that's plugged in there. It's got about 50 additional pages, and uh, they're woven in to the texture of it all. And it's just a much better book. And I think the people who bought the first edition, um, you, you very rarely see any of them turning those in because uh, they're worth a lot more money, as any first edition is, with, with all the flaws that it might have. It's it's uh, it's a very limited uh, edition, so it's worth money. Mm-hmm. So most people figure that out, and they say, well, you know, I paid 40 bucks for this, but it's now worth uh, 140. I'll, I'll hang on to it. Maybe in a couple years it'll be worth 400. And so they're, they're hanging on to these books now. I've still got mine sitting Matter on fact, the, the, pub- the publisher, uh, Jacobs Brown, said, look, Send in your your first edition, and we'll send you a revised edition at at no charge. Yeah, that's and that true. still applies. If anybody listening wants to do that, you can go to the uh, jacobsbrownmediagroup.com or go to the sister site, theseofthevoyagesbooks.com, and you'll find the the address. And you mail your book back, uh, and and you'll get a a revised edition sent to you, autographed by me, for no charge. You're out five dollars postage and a trip to the post office. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend anybody do that because you could sell that book on, on Amazon or eBay for a hundred bucks. Yeah. I was going to say, send it to me and then I will send you a new copy <laughs> and sell that one. And, and you know what we, and you know what we did with those books that came back and we, we did it at Vegas too. Anybody walked up with a first edition and wanted to trade, we'd say, here you go. Yeah. We'd give them a new edition and we destroy them. Wow. We destroyed every single one of them. Wow. Oh. You know, there's a couple people at Jacobs Brown, uh, Andy Johnson's one. <laughs> he, he writes me an email saying, Mark, you know, can I have any copies you get? I'd like to have a couple of these and say, no. <laughs> because when you're a writer and, and you realize that something was put out with some flaws in it, and typos and some misspelled words, God forbid, and things of that nature, well, you you take that thing and you, you rip it to pieces and put it in the recycle bin. Uh, so, you know, my, my deal with them is, is that, you know, any copies that come in, come to me and I'm going to take care of them good and proper. Man, you're just like George <laughs> now, Lucas. I do have one copy that I've kept. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I have one copy and, uh, and if anybody else has a copy, hang on to it. But, uh, otherwise, no, those get destroyed. So the value of the other ones goes up. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's, that's, that's crazy. Okay. Just so don't read it. <laughs> read, read the revised one. Yeah, keep, <laughs> just, the, just keep, keep it, it on your shelf. It looks, it looks it. pretty. Yeah, you know, and then get yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so so you've got those two books, and now you you've also got you know some other ones too. I mean, there, there's so many that they're hard to keep straight. But what what should people know about that's coming up that that they can expect to see from you, just in general, not just Star well, Trek, but in, in general. You know, the I Spy books out there. If anybody cares, I know this is a sci sci fi uh, podcast and. They said, oh, I don't care about that, but it's out there, and it's a damn good book. Um, and we've got the, the two Irwin Allen books coming up. And if they do well, I'll do a third Irwin Allen book down the road covering Land of the Giants and his master disaster period. It's a fascinating story. He was really an interesting individual. Uh, so the, the first one uh, will be out uh, in a couple months. And then the the other one, we're pushing to try to get it out before the end of the year, but I, I just can't guarantee it. Uh, then These are Voyages 4 will be out next year uh, in the fall, maybe in August at the show. 
and then the following year we're looking at uh, next generation for uh, uh, August, September, October, somewhere in that period of 2017. Fantastic, man! Lots of lots of stuff to read in the coming months and years. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and my other interest is is popular music, you know, pop music, and I've got a couple books that I've done a ton of research on over the decades that I'm dying to do, but it's just a matter of trying to, uh, you know, fit it all in. And when you got these these damn when you got these damn anniversaries coming up, <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, can I do that book on the Beatles? I always want to write. No, Mark, you've got you've got the the fiftieth coming up in September, and the year after that, we got the thirtieth of Next Generation coming up. You got to stick on these, which I love because I love the shows and I love writing about the shows and I love finding out all the stuff that I'm finding out. But as a writer, it'd be nice to switch off now and then and do something completely different. But these anniversaries just are coming up so quickly, and you know you got to try to hit them. Well, the Beatles have, to have, have an anniversary coming up soon too, right? I mean, the Beatles. I mean, it's got to be one. Well, in the uh, there's always an anniversary. Let's yeah. see. They 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 uh, invaded America in '64, so the the 50th anniversary was was last year. Oh, yeah, we missed that. We could always say, "Well, it's the 50th anniversary of Sergeant Pepper." Oh, there you <laughs> go. Whatever you're going to do, that's that's worth it. And, uh, and it all ties into Star Trek, you know. Hey, uh, when they hired uh, Walter Koenig, you've seen the memos. Roddenberry says, "Let's get a Beatles-looking guy on the on the Enterprise, like that <laughs> that that guy on that monkey show that looks like Paul McCartney. Let's get somebody with that kind of Beatles haircut and put him on the ship and everything else. It all ties in. It's a great." era. You know, I interviewed Billy Mummy. I'm sorry, I'm all over the map today for you guys. <laughs> I know okay. you want to talk about Book 4, but I, I can't tell you a lot about Book 4 no, yet. No, no, I... Uh, but I, I interviewed Billy Mummy for um, uh, the Lost in Space book. And what a great interview. What a great guy, first of all. Uh, just delightful. He's brilliant. <laughs> you know, As a kid, he would memorize these scripts. He'd read them once, and he had every line of dialogue memorized. He's just an amazing guy. And he does music. And he plays with uh, the band America, and he's done a lot of things of that nature. You know, but he's telling me when I'm interviewing him, he's, he's saying, man, it was just great. I'm so happy I was born when I was born. Because even though he was only like 10 at that time, you know, he's saying he said, every week at that period, something more is coming up. And it's like, hey, have you... Have you heard the new Beach Boys album? And it's Pet Sounds. And, and have you heard the new Beatles album the same week that comes out? It's Revolver. And he says, it's just amazing. And then, of course, Vietnam going on and all the civil rights stuff and everything else. And then they're there at 20th Century Fox in this nucleus. You know, we're right next door to their sound stages, the Voice of the Sea, and right across the alleyway is Batman and the Green Hornet. And he says, I got to go sit in the Batmobile. <laughs> and he's still, he's like a kid. You know, just reliving how much fun it was for him at age 10 to be on that lot in that decade, in that era, with everything that was happening. It's just constant stimulation all around you. And you see that in the Star Trek books, too, is because so many of those episodes were being written about what was going on. You know, the balance of terror, you know, where the Enterprise has to chase the Romulans and they don't want to step across the line. They're not allowed to cross that border to try to catch the ship. They got to get it before it gets to that border. And you read that chapter and you find out that, well, in Vietnam, the Viet Cong would come across the border from North Vietnam into South Vietnam. They would do their hits and then they would retreat 
and we couldn't pursue them. The American military could not pursue them across that line. And they had to try to get them before they crossed the line. And if they did cross the line, you better hope nobody finds out about it. And so they said, let's do an episode about that. And that became Balance of Terror. And so Roddenberry was very plugged in to everything that was happening at that time. So for me, being a pop historian, it's fun because I'm able to bring all that information out and you get to find out uh, the, where the ideas for these episodes came in. And then you guys have read book three now and you know about Spock's brain. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. I mean, it's it's crazy that, you know, because watching them in reruns and not not being aware of the, the historical context, you know, and then finding yeah. that out. It's, the first heart transplant had just taken place yeah. and Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry are sitting there watching... TV in Gene's office, he came in to pitch some stories for the third year, Kuhn did, and, and you know, there's people out protesting on the streets about the fact that man doesn't have the right to play God and take an organ from one body and put it into another, and and they just kind of looked at each other and said, we got to do something with this, mm-hmm. and and there's Spock's brain. Not one of their great successes, but... but they were trying. But, but when you read this, you at least respect them. For they were always trying. Yeah. Not they're not going to hit a home run each time out, but you know that they never went in without a theme, without an agenda, without something important that they wanted to talk about in this episode. And ninety percent of the time, they, they succeeded. But the ten percent that they didn't, you at least find out that they weren't just just screwing off. It wasn't like, hey, we want to get, go out and play golf. Let's just bang something out. No, every episode was essentially important to them. And uh, and to me, that's the joy of, of doing this kind of research and being able to bring that information forward for all the fans, yeah. who I'm one of. For sure, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> so so where if for people who haven't read the first three books, where can they, they find those if they want to check them out? Anywhere. Uh, you know, uh, they can come to my house, I'll give them one. Uh, <laughs> you can get them on Amazon.com, of course. Everything in the world is available on Amazon.com. You can get them at Barnes & Noble. You can get them at bookstores all over the place or you know you can get them uh, directly from the publisher the e- the easy one uh to remember is these the voyages books.com and um and those all come autographed and they're they're the best price out there too you know they're even cheaper than amazon and it's hard to be cheaper than amazon yeah. but you know you're cutting out the middleman so they're able to sell them a little cheaper uh so you can get them all there and uh and the same thing with the uh, the Irwin allen books that are coming up because they're um it's going to be Jacobs Brown as well. Excellent. I got a piece of the action, so I, you know, I'm going to try to stay close to home. <laughs> I don't think another publisher can give me as good of a deal. Excellent. They gave me a part of the company, so you know, sure. Oh. <laughs> so you're going to give us this book, Mark? Well, do I get a little bigger piece of the company? Okay, I'll, you know, I'll give you the book. Because <laughs> God knows you don't make much money off of books anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, what can you do? Well, well, I'll the, tell you what you do. You try to do a TV series. Here, I'll tell you something before you go. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> so when you write books like this, any book, whether it's a, a fiction or nonfiction, you're, of course you're hoping Hollywood's going to come along and want to buy the film rights and, and all that. Uh, we had the I Spy books set up. They, they were going to do a, a TV movie based on the making of I Spy and how historical it was. And it was going to be on a few weeks ago. But it fell apart a year ago with, you know, all the Cosby stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that deal went south. And so that big paycheck kind of went away. Uh, and uh, 
we've got right now one of the bigger agencies in Hollywood um, is interested in trying to put something together on uh, the, these are the voyages books, uh, maybe a mini series on the making of Star Trek, and so that may happen. Uh, it's kind of hard to make that happen because you've got Paramount and CBS in their divorce, mm. and uh, you got to get permission from both of these. It's kind of like having two parents who won't talk to each other. <laughs> And you're trying to make a decision on what school the kid's going to go to, and the two parents are in disagreement on everything. And that's why we don't have a new uh, Star Trek series on right now, yeah. is because CBS and Paramount merged. It didn't work out, and now they have joint custody of Star Trek, and so it, it really just makes it difficult to get anything done. Thank God for the fan series. Yeah. And at least we can have new series there. Um and you know the Irwin Allen stuff. I'm hoping to get a TV property going for that. So, so yes, no. Mark's Mark's um, trying to look into making a decent living. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I love doing these books. Yeah. Uh, if I were to just try to make a living off the books, it's not a very good living. But uh, <laughs> you try to get some film rights going, and you're doing a little bit better. So if you guys want to like produce a movie, let me know. <laughs> I, I I would watch the hell out of a These Are the Voyages TV series or movie. That would be the best thing ever. Would it be great? Yeah. And you know who I would cast as Gene Roddenberry is. Um, uh, oh, good God! Why can't I think of his uh, uh, Baldwin? Um, uh, Alec, Alec Baldwin. Baldwin? I can see that. I can Doesn't see he that look a sure. little like Roddenberry? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, you know, he's got good. kind of the build and everything. And I think, man, he would make a great Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'd be good. He'd be good. Wow. Yeah, that 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 would be a cool show. I would. I mean, I would. I mean, that 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 behind the scenes stuff. And I mean, there's precedent for it. I mean, look at like Mad Men or whatever. You know. I mean, yeah, that would be just a slam dunk right there. Ah. Oh, yeah, I hope it happens. Madman in Hollywood. Yeah, it, you know, it really it's it's a great era to write about. Uh, it just just a lot of things coming out of that era and a lot of things going on. But uh, to be at the nucleus of uh, of Star Trek, you know, with them keeping their eye on the newspapers and keeping their eye on everything that's happening, and and incorporating it into the show, but for trying to do it in a clever way so that NBC wouldn't say, "Oh no." You can't do this. Uh, <laughs> you can't. You can't talk about the civil rights movement with your half white, half black guy. You can't do this. You can't have Kirk kissing your hurrah and all that. So you know, every episode was a battle, but every episode had an agenda, and that's and and the more you know about it, the more interesting it is to watch. I ran into one person who uh, who had bought the first book but hadn't read it and hadn't bought the, the the second two so of course my my first goal is to get them to buy books so i can make some money but but in all honesty i said i said why haven't you read it and she said well i don't really want to know about what went on making it because then it won't feel as real to me i love watching star trek and i love believing that it's real and if i know what was going on behind the curtain it's not going to be as interesting and I felt bad for her because I thought, no, it is more interesting to find out because we've seen the episodes a hundred times each. <laughs> so now you can watch them and be more aware of what was going on and, and the fight to get it made and the, and the compromises that were made and, and what it was really going to be, you know, if it hadn't been for worrying about budget and everything else and they had to scale it down and things of that nature. Uh, to me, it's more interesting. It doesn't spoil watching the show for me. When I watch Star Trek, I, I still get lost in it. You know, it's still, I believe Kirk and Spock are real. I believe it's out there. It, it doesn't diminish any of that for me. But on another level, 
it's it's just fun knowing uh, what it took to get that episode made. Yeah, it gives but you, not everybody is that way. It, it gives you a chance to look I at it with when fresh I was a kid, eyes. Yeah. yeah, when I was a kid, uh, my parents took me to Universal Studios uh, back before it was a theme park. Back when it was just they just drove you around, and you got to see. You know the cycle mansion and you got to sit you know uh and you got to go watch a show being filmed and and things of that nature and there's mikhail's navy out there by the lake and there's you know wagon train and here's it takes a thief and all this stuff and and i saw the fake backdrops and i went home and for about two weeks that was maybe 10 you know i went for two weeks every time i watched a tv show my eye would go towards the backdrop and I'd go, oh, that's fake. It's a big painting. Oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to enjoy watching a movie again or a TV show again. That lasted for about two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> if it's a good show, you, you, just, you just get lost in it. You forget you're watching a show. It just becomes real. And, and so I don't think this kind of information ruins the experience. I, I think it enhances it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us again. And, you know, I mean, it, it was great to talk to you about books one, two, and three, and, and we can't wait for book four. And um, even though we won't be here when book four comes out, you know, some someone else will. We've got we've got Norm and Jeff coming on, and, you know, we can't wait to hear. Yeah. Can't wait to hear all about that and read it, you know? It'd be great. Yeah. And 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 then I'll come over to your next generation show, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, guys. Excellent. But don't be strangers. You can call in any time. Oh, we can pretend we do a show. We'll just talk, <laughs> and 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 we'll pretend it's going out as a podcast. But we'll just talk. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll still be around. We'll still be around the network and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you 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 haven't heard the last of us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. All right. Alrighty, guys. Well, thanks thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Well, that was fun having Mark on. I'm glad that he was willing to come on one last time, at least on our show in its current form. Yeah, and give us a little preview of, of what's to come and uh, what we can expect to, to read in, in book four of These Are the Voyages. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, especially the... I want to read the notes that the network sent back on Magics of Megas 2. Like, <laughs> I just don't understand why they weren't like, no... <laughs> no. Yeah. Um Yeah, I'd hey, you know, I mean I'm I'm all for uh Magics of Magus too. I remember that episode. But... It's the one with the devil, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no. I'm 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 sure. It's it the only good. one I've seen twice. Really? I had to show my friend because it's crazy. <laughs> Alright. Well well it was fun talking with Mark about the uh the dark ages of star trek but that's just one of the trek topics we've been talking about on trek fm this week here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network previously on trek.fm standard orbit not inner space inner phase inner space is the that's the one where they shrink down and they like go and like fight viruses first movie i ever saw letterboxd I was like, why are there black bars in the top and bottom of the screen? This movie is garbage. Earl Grey. Daddy, do pets have a Nexus too? <laughs> the Pexus. Kirk had a, a dog in the Nexus too, didn't he? Oh, uh, Butler. Butler. Butler is now <laughs> Shadow. So we have the adventures homeward bound of Butler, Porthos, and Spot. Will they make it back to their owners in Montana? The Orb. 
Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently, the Navark reports directly to the prophets. Which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings. So, right. Yeah. Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right? That is true. It could have been yesterday and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! It's fake intimacy. Thank you! It is them trying to say, Jakote knows Janeway so well that just by fiddling her comm badge, he knows the crap's gonna hit the fan. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. Weird is relative when you're talking about a book about a guy who taxidermies his mother, so... The 602 Club. I think you've uh, hit something here, and I've never thought of it this way, but the true savior of the galaxy, it's not Obi-Wan, it's not Luke Skywalker, it's Aunt Beru. Literary Treks. Greg is a great guy to bring up because his dad was this raging drunk, mm. and, uh, you know, he had a sort of drag him in on, off the porch at night because he'd come home like falling down drunk and you know you think of and here he was this kind of great man for the country at the time uh, but he came from a place that was really kind of dark but also very relatable women at warp there's always a touchstone and this was as close to a touchstone as they ever got with Pulaski plus she banged Riker's dad Oh, Andy. I'm sorry. I just think it's so funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the Daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or you can just stream from the website. You can visit Trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. Well, if you want to contact us and share your thoughts on today's show, you can go to Trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose Send a Show and Choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab in the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using webcam's microphone, or you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? Uh, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing commentary, Trek Stars, and you can also find me on commentary, trackstars.com doing commentary track star babies and you can find me on twitter at mumbles 3k you can find me on twitter at 005 d-o-u-b-l-e-o-f-i-v-e and on various other places around the internet before we go we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who hosts spring standard orbit to you each week and our sponsor for the show is audible.com audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week from classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation, Audible has something for everyone. Mike, you have something for everyone? Yeah, I have Star Trek Movie Memories by William Shatner. Aww. The sequel to the best-selling Star Trek Memories documentary in deliciously lurid and candid detail all the behind-the-scenes shenanigans in the making of the six Star Trek movies with on-the-scene reporting from the set of the seventh in which Kirk dies. Spoilers. Spoilers. Star Trek Movie Memories recounts all the chaos, creative turmoil, backstage politics, power plays, and production nightmares that per permeated every one of the six Star Trek movies, including the accumulated grudges that haven't yet mellowed with the passage of time. 
and the stories. Nicholas Meyer writing the script for Star Trek II in 12 days. Kirstie Alley doing her Leonard Nimoy imitation in an audition. How Kirk's love interest in Star Trek IV began as a role for Eddie Murphy. And you can imagine the rest. Or maybe not. With stories and quotes from the principles that have never before been uttered in public, this will deliver a truly unprecedented behind-the-scenes view of the Trek films that will amaze even the most avid Trekker. And you yeah. can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. That's right. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. We'd also like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. and Renee Roberts for being our associate producers this week by supporting us on Patreon. You can find Richard on Twitter at RUT8972 and Renee at MRES underscore 1701. Yeah, thanks, guys. And if you want to help them keep us in orbit, you can also support us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll find a list of donation levels where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer for our shows. You can also find out where the donations can go on the site, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. Well... All right, we know what we're doing next week, too. Yeah. And so spoilers for tomorrow's episode of uh, Earl Grey, but uh, be sure to tune in to that for uh, round one of our Trek Mates match, where we pretend that we have ever really discussed Next Generation before. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's it would help if you had seen the show. Right. Well, <laughs> it's true. I'm getting there. I'm trying to watch it before we record. Spoilers for time travel. How many more uh, seasons do you have left? I have 30. It's 30 odd. No, I've got like 50 episodes. Okay, but you're in season six right now? Yeah, I'm I'm in season six. Um, Well, that's like one of the best seasons in television history. So you should be able to burn through that in a couple hours. We might get asked that question, what your favorite oh. season is. <laughs> I didn't say it was my favorite. I just said it was one of the best in television history. With Star you Trek, you can say that. So that's fine. It, with, with, it, you, you can say that in, in, in with regards to Star Trek, and it still doesn't mean it's the best in Star Trek history. Uh, anyway, so uh, we will be uh, immediately rematching them and recording that for episode 102. So uh, where we'll do two U.S. questions, and I think we'll do really well, or at least better. You know what's weird is, like, even though, like, some of those questions, like, reading the questions, some of them were, like, from an episode that we recorded, like, two weeks ago, I was like, you know, I'm not exactly sure the answer to this question. <laughs> like, like, I honestly don't know what your favorite TOS movie is. Like... Because, I, I don't know, it's weird. Anyway. Well, we'll find out yeah. in an embarrassing fashion next week yes. on Standard Orbit. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landrew. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.